Hello and welcome to the Backtracker History Show podcast with me, Alice. Let me take you on a gentle stroll through the archives as we discover intriguing tales about people and events that happened in the past, all of which will be brought to life by an array of amazing voice talent from across the world. We have stories about a huge variety of subjects, from activists to war heroes, creatives and, of course, murderers. We have it all. This show is initially released as a radio show on Bradley Stoke Radio in Bristol, but the podcast allows me to put more detail in and go into more depth about each story. So, get ready for the latest instalment of the Backtracker History Show, bringing the past back to life. This week's story is all about murder, Victorian style. About a woman who wants more from life and doesn't care how she gets it. Or who she sacrifices along the way. This week's event occurred in the year 1845 and as always, let's see what else happened in that year. At 3.45pm on the 7th of February, the Portland vase, situated in the British Museum, was shattered by William Lloyd, who, after drinking all the previous week, threw a nearby sculpture on top of the case, smashing both it and the vase. He was arrested and ordered to pay a fine of £3 or spend two months in prison. He remained in prison until an anonymous benefactor paid the fine by mail. The name William Lloyd is thought to be a pseudonym. Investigators hired by the British Museum found out that he was actually called William Mulcahy, a student who had gone missing from Trinity College. Detectives reported that Mulcahy's family was impoverished and the owner of the vase declined to bring a civil action against him because he did not want his family to suffer for an act of folly or madness which they could not control. The Portland vase, by the way, is a Roman cameo glass vase, which is dated to between AD 1 and AD 25. On the 17th of March, Stephen Perry patents the rubber band. He was a 19th century British inventor and businessman, and his corporation, Perry & Co, Rubber Manufacturers of London, made early products from vulcanised rubber. The 20th of May saw the last fatal duel between Englishmen on English soil, which took place near Gosport. James Alexander Seaton is shot and dies 12 days later from his wound. His opponent, Royal Marine Lieutenant Charles Laws Pym, is tried for murder a year later, but acquitted. July the 26th to August the 10th, Isambard Kingdom Brunel's ironship Great Britain makes the transatlantic crossing from Liverpool to New York, and it's the first screw-propelled vessel to make that journey. September the 9th, and the potato blight breaks out in Ireland, beginning the Great Famine. And lastly, on December the 27th, anaesthesia is used for childbirth for the first time by Dr Crawford Long in Jefferson, Georgia. 
but we're concerned with an event that happened in April of that year by an infamous former prostitute turned serial killer who poisoned members of her own family. I am talking about Sarah Freeman. Word of the Week And this week, I give you... King's Evil, which is pretty much tuberculosis of the neck, an infection of the throat lymph glands. This one's unusual because the name originated in the time of Edward the Confessor, with the belief that the disease could be cured by the touch of the King of England. A Dr Johnson suffered from it as a boy and was touched for it by Queen Anne. She was the last monarch to touch for the king's evil. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, the infected gland was lanced and drained. This often led to a noticeable scar on the neck as the wound might continue to seep for a time. Ooh. When the disease was at its most common, the ceremony for being touched by the monarch was a very big deal, and from the time of Henry VII, sufferers were presented with especially touched coins to be worn as amulets or charms. The custom reached its zenith during the Restoration. Charles II is said to have touched more than 90,000 victims between 1660 and 1682. Our villain this week, Sarah Freeman, was born Sarah Dimond in Shapwick in 1817. She came from a poor but honest family and was described, though, as having a vicious temper and character that caused her parents to worry. The daughter of Charles and Mary Dimond, she was sent to school at seven where she learned to read, write and was instructed in the use of the needle. She left school at 16 and by the time she was 18 years old, she already had two illegitimate children. Her disruptive and aggressive behaviour saw her hounded out of her home village of Shapwick, moving to Bridgewater to become a prostitute. She became pregnant for the third time, said to have been a result of improper intimacy with a clergyman of the Church of England. The clergyman paid Henry Freeman to marry her, and the couple settled in Pedwell, living in a cottage with Sarah's illegitimate son, James Dimond, and a lodger named John Wake. When he was seven years old, James began to complain of having a stomachache and started to vomit. He was put to bed but continued to be ill throughout the night before dying the following day. At that time, cholera was rampant and James' death was considered to be of natural causes and he was laid to rest. In 1843, Sarah's husband, Henry Freeman, also fell ill, complaining of a stomachache, vomiting and heart palpitations. The doctor visited and left him medicine, but he died shortly afterwards, allegedly another victim of cholera. Henry had been part of a life and death club, and Sarah received £20 from his death, promptly packing up and moving to London. But the money soon ran out, and she returned to Bridgewater and wrote to her family, asking if she could return to live with them. Her brother Charles replied, 
telling her in no uncertain terms that she would not be welcome there. A few days after her brother Charles's flat refusal to allow Sarah to return to the family home, she visited the shop of Mr Varda, a Bridgewater chemist, and tried to buy a three-penny bottle of arsenic, claiming she needed it to kill rats. The chemist originally refused to sell it to her, but she claimed to be the sister of a postman, and the poison was sold to her by an apprentice in the shop. Sarah arrived back at the family home on December the 9th, 1844, and just three days later, her 72-year-old mother became violently ill, suffering from stomach pains and violent retchings. She died on December the 14th, and was buried before Christmas Day. So now, as the only woman in the house, Sarah was allowed to stay, until Charles informed the family of his intention to wed and bring his bride to the cottage, making Sarah redundant. On Boxing Day 1844, just a few weeks after the death of his mother, Charles was suddenly seized with a violent sickness and pain. A doctor who examined him found him to be bitterly cold, vomiting and suffering from a weak heartbeat and racing pulse. He eventually succumbed to his illness on December the 31st. Having two sudden deaths in the same family caused suspicion and the coroner immediately issued a warrant the exhumation of the mother and brother, whose bodies were subjected to a post-mortem examination by the local surgeon, Mr. E. R. Phillips, who forwarded the stomach and intestines to Mr. Herapath in Bristol to make a chemical analysis of the contents. This is when arsenic was discovered. Then the bodies of Henry Freeman, Sarah's husband, and James Dimond, her son, were exhumed, and yet more arsenic was found. Inquiries were immediately started by the coroner and magistrates, which resulted in the arrest of Sarah. Although Sarah was charged with four murders, she was only tried for one, that of her late brother Charles. The Somerset Lent Assizes opened in Taunton, before Mr Justice Coleridge on April the 1st 1845. Her defence explained to the jury that they had to be satisfied that arsenic had indeed been the cause of death, and if they were, that Sarah had administered it. He also tried to persuade the jury that there was no evidence of motive or malice in the killing, and that there was at least some reasonable doubt. Word on the street. Today I'm going to take you to Taunton, just down the road from Bridgewater, the setting for today's story. And stroll down Butts Way. There's also Butts Lane and Butts Close. The name comes from Archery. A butt is either a target or the mound of earth behind the target, which is there to safely absorb badly aimed arrows. As you can imagine, back in the day, archery was an important part of medieval warfare 
and in the 15th century, the practice of archery was compulsory on Sundays and holidays. And so the streets that had that name will usually be on or near the original archery locations. It took the jury just 15 minutes to return a guilty verdict on Sarah Freeman and for Judge Justice Coleridge to pass the death sentence. In response, Sarah said, Justice has not been done me. My life has been unfairly taken away. Before being returned to Wilton Jail. On April the 10th, she made a statement in which she said she was innocent and still claimed it was her brother, John, who had testified against her, claiming he had killed Charles and her mother. The statement contained various names and addresses, which were all investigated and validated as false. Whilst Sarah was waiting for her execution, she kept herself busy by making a new cap for herself while in prison and told the female warders that... I'm not going up there looking a perfect fright. Sarah slept well on the Tuesday night prior to the execution and rose at 6am, managing to have some breakfast. She was visited by the chaplain and under-sheriff and the governor, and to each one she continued to protest her innocence. She admitted that she had brought the arsenic, but claimed that her brother John had stolen it and administered it to her mother and Charles. At 10am, she attended a service in the chapel and received the sacrament. Just before 11am on the Wednesday morning of April the 23rd, 1845, Sarah was taken to the gallows at Wilton Jail in Taunton. She prayed with the chaplain while the hangman, William Corcroft, made the final preparations. Hours before the execution was due to take place, people had started turning up to witness the event, and by the time it was set to occur, thousands had gathered outside the jail. Her last words were, I'm as innocent as a lamb. Corcroft drew the white hood over her head and placed the noose around her neck. He then drew the bolt and she died in front of an estimated 15,000 witnesses. She was buried within the prison grounds. On the Thursday after Sarah's execution, George Davis made a statement which was published in the press telling how Sarah wanted to be with him in 1840. They had lived together for six weeks, and some three years later, after the death of her husband, Sarah wrote to George and suggested that she had money, including the £20 from the death club, on which they could get married. He had replied that he was going to be working Wales for a month and that when he returned, he would consider her proposal. She wrote again, saying that she wanted to know his answer and that if it was negative, she would... Serve him with the same trick as she had her husband. Not surprisingly, George sensibly wrote back saying he wanted nothing more to do with her. Sarah, however, made several attempts to find George and meet with him and in July 1844, she enlisted her brother Joseph to help her find him in the pubs in Cheddar, 
where he was living. Joseph reported back to Sarah that George would not see her and went to pick up a pint of beer that was on the table in the king's arms, where Sarah had been waiting. Sarah told him to put it down, as it was for George, and then picked it up herself and threw it into the fire grate. Earlier, Sarah had asked for a spoon and had been seen to mix something into the beer. Examination of a glass afterwards revealed a yellowish substance at the bottom. However, this was not reported to the authorities and no further action was taken. It's worth noting that unlike today, in the Victorian era, various poisons were very common in everyday life and very easy to get your hands on. Arsenic was kept in homes as rat poison. It could be easily obtained from a pharmacist. Even a child could purchase arsenic over the counter. It was odourless and tasteless and was frequently confused with flour, baking powder or cream of tartar. Arsenic was used in all sorts of products such as inks and the bright colours achieved in wallpaper and clothing dyes. In fact, it was the colour green which caused the problem in wallpaper, which was a hugely popular colour in that period of time. A Swedish chemist named Carl Scheele used copper arsenite to create a bright green, named Scheele's Green, which became very fashionable with the pre-Raphaelite movement of artists and with home decorators, catering to everyone from the emerging middle classes upwards. Copper arsenite, of course, contains the element arsenic. And this wallpaper was so toxic that all they had to do to get the effect was to breathe in the same room. The slightest breeze could emit vapours of toxic dust. Breathing in these poisonous, toxic fumes was not as fatal as actually ingesting the green dyes, but it could lead to a condition known as chronic arsenism. In 1858, The Lancet described how a three-year-old boy had died after eating the pigment that had flaked off the wallpaper in his nursery. A couple in Birmingham applied bright green wallpaper to two rooms of their house and immediately suffered from headaches, inflamed eyes and sore throats. Reportedly, even their pet parrot became ill. Newspapers sensationalised murder trials of wives who supposedly killed their husbands with inheritance powder, as it was known. Stories of people accidentally poisoning their family were legion. One woman killed five of her nine children with a rhubarb crumble. Another killed herself and her son with a New Year's Eve pudding. In 1837, 506 deaths from inadvertent consumption of arsenic were reported. The death toll by arsenic remained high for much of the Victorian era. One morning in 1879, a visiting dignitary who had stayed the night at Buckingham Palace was late for his morning meeting with Queen Victoria herself. His excuse was that he had become horribly ill from the green wallpaper in his guest bedroom. When an investigation revealed that the wallpaper in his room was indeed coloured with Shields green dye, Queen Victoria ordered every room in Buckingham Palace to be stripped of poisonous wallpaper.
Looking for a new podcast? Check out the Infectious Groove podcast. My name is Russ, and I host the show along with Michelle and Kyle. Every Monday, the three of us bring you music news and tell you our jammy jams, so you'll always have new music to check out. The Infectious Groove podcast discusses music from nearly every decade and genre while openly displaying our passion for music you need to hear. On top of that, we have a thought-provoking main topic of discussion every week to get you thinking, discussing, and sharing music. We also include interviews with the music stars of yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and all major podcast platforms. Subscribe and listen to the Infectious Groove podcast on your favorite podcast platform today. Back in the day facts. Right, let's start off with the 22nd of October, 1383, when the male line of the Portuguese House of Burgundy becomes extinct with the death of King Ferdinando, leaving only his daughter Beatrice. Rival claimants begin a period of civil war and disorder. The 23rd of October, 1942, all 12 passengers and crewmen aboard American Airlines Flight 28 are killed when it collides with an U.S. Army Air Force bomber near Palm Springs in California. Also on the 23rd of October 1998, Britney Spears releases her debut single, Baby One More Time. The 24th of October 1857, and Sheffield Football Club, the world's oldest association football club still in operation, is founded in England. The 25th of October 1854 sees the Battle of Balaclava taking place during the Crimean War. It is soon memorialised in Alfred Lord Tennyson's narrative poem, The Charge of the Light Brigade. Cannon to right of them, cannon to left of them, cannon in front of them, volleyed and thundered. Stormed at with shot and shell, boldly they rode and well. Into the jaws of death, into the mouth of hell, rode the 600. The 26th of October, 1881, Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday take part in the gunfight at the OK Corral in Tombstone, Arizona. Generally regarded as the most famous shootout in the history of American Old West, and it took only 32 seconds. And lastly, on the 27th of October, 939, Ethelston, the first King of England, dies, and is succeeded by his half-brother, Edmund I. From the film The Lion King, that was, of course, I just can't wait to be king. And now I fear it's the end of the show. But before I go, I'd like to thank Carrie Ball from St. Stephen's Drama Group in Bristol for lending her voice and bringing this story to life. Thank you once again for listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter or Facebook by looking up at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. 
I also occasionally post onto TikTok and Instagram. So do come along and find me because it's amazing to hear from you and get some feedback or even ideas for future shows. As a small independent podcaster, your help and support is always appreciated. And one way you can do that is to rate the show wherever you get your podcasts. Leaving a review also helps as it gives other people an idea of what the show's about. The show is regularly released on Mondays. So until next time, guys, take care and look after each other.